As the October 7th attacks began on Israel in 2023, followed by the devastating Israeli response in Gaza, some expected the conflict to spread even further across the region. Hezbollah threatened to strike Israel from Lebanon. Iran was plotting in the background with various armed groups. Yet some of the most potentially disruptive attacks came from an area of conflict in the Middle East often forgotten, at least in the West. Yet it could affect us all. There's a very clear message to the, the Houthis in Yemen who've been launching all these attacks. You know, these attacks will not be tolerated. Yemen is the poorest country in the Middle East, impoverished even further by a civil war since 2015. But now, Yemen's Houthi rebels have fired rockets and drones towards Israel. The Houthis have also targeted the vital shipping lanes in the Red Sea, the southern entrance of the Suez Canal. And that has led to confrontations with the United States Navy, including one in which 10 Houthi fighters were killed. This is an issue that affects the entire international community and that requires collective action. And so what does this new threat tell us about both peace in the Middle East and the fragile trade routes connecting Europe and Asia to the East? I'm Gavin Esler, and this is Not a Drill. Yemen is the poorest country in the Middle East. It's been the scene of a long civil war, at least since 2015, pitting Houthi rebels against the Yemen government. In the complex political geometry of the region, it has also been seen as a proxy war involving Saudi Arabia and its allies in the United Arab Emirates on the side of the Yemen government and with Iran playing a role supporting the Houthi rebellion. A rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran led to an uneasy truce since 2022. The Saudis and their allies had been spending billions of dollars on the fighting, much of it on Western armaments, and the truce cooled some of the tensions in the region. But not anymore. The capacity of outsiders to forget about Yemen has ended after Houthi attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. Houthi militia began firing missiles and drones at Israel then moved on to the more realistic soft target of ships using the Red Sea, through which 10% of global trade is said to travel. The Houthis have also hijacked commercial ships, and the threat has prompted major shipping firms to divert their vessels away from Red Sea routes. In response, the United States, Britain and a dozen other countries issued an ultimatum to the Houthis, saying, Houthi attacks in the Red Sea are illegal, unacceptable, and profoundly destabilising. Then on the morning of January the 10th, Western forces shot down missiles and drones in the largest reported attack to date. So, with piracy, fears about sea lanes and threats to shipping through the Suez Canal, where are we now in this, the Middle East's other conflict? Could the result be cargo ships forced to take a long and costly detour around South Africa? To discuss all this and the future of Yemen itself, I'm delighted to be joined by Helen Lackner, who spent decades visiting and writing about Yemen and is author, among other things, of Yemen in Crisis, Devastating Conflict, Fragile Hope and Yemen, Poverty and Conflict. 
Helen, um, for those of us who don't know much about this conflict, can we start from the beginning, as it were? Who are the Houthis? Well, the Houthis are a political military movement that's been functioning and operating in Yemen basically since the beginning of this century. It existed a little bit before that, but it really got involved in a struggle against the earlier regime in Yemen of Ali Abdullah Saleh with a series of conflicts that started in 2004 and more or less ended in 2010. And then in 2014-15, as a result of the failure of the transition away from the Saleh regime, they basically took over the capital, Sana'a, and the most populated parts of the country, with the result that they actually control about two-thirds of the population and one-third of the geographical area. Is this a conflict with ancient roots, or is it a particularly modern grievance? I'd say it's a modern grievance. Um, The basic fundamental belief of the Houthi movement is that Sada, descendants of the Prophet, also known as Ashraf or Hashemites, have the right to rule, and that's their main, really, ideological position internally. But the Yemen state, I think you have to say, there's basically not one Yemen state at the moment. You have the Houthis. On the other hand, you have what's known as the internationally recognized government, which basically is the Saudis and the Emiratis and diplomatically and in terms of weapons to the US and Britain and France and all all other countries. So where do the attacks on international shipping going into the Red Sea come in and what are they trying to achieve? Well, this is exclusively a Houthi operation and fits in with the one and only major element of Houthi international um, foreign relations policy which is that they are anti-Israelis and they are deliberately and intending to support the Palestinians. So they are attacking explicitly ships that have any connection with Israel, either going there, ownership, management, anything that's got any connection with Israel is part of their target. How far is this also a proxy uh, war, as it were, or conflict? What are Iranian interests in that? What are they trying to achieve? I get very frustrated by the endless talks of proxy, proxy, proxy. Yes, there is a connection between the Houthis and the Iranian Shia, and there's an ideological connection, and there's also been basically an alliance for many, many years. You know, the Houthis have been sending some of their people for for religious training in Iran, so there is that connection. But The reality is that the Houthis have their policies, and as I explained, their main internal ideological position is the belief that Sada should rule. And their main international position is anti-Israeli, and indeed actually anti-Semitic. I mean, their main slogan includes two lines, which one of which is death to Israel, and the other one is curse on the Jews. But what they've done has also led them into conflict with the United States and the British Navy. In fact, at least 10 Houthis have been killed, and three boats have been sunk by the Americans. And there's been another recent attack in which the United States and UK say they have downed a lot of drones and other things being fired at the ship. So this could escalate. I think it could escalate. And I think there is a risk of it escalating. I think the other element to look at on this is why have the US not responded more actively or dramatically earlier? 
And I think the answer to that relates to the negotiations that have been going on to basically extract Saudi Arabia from the Yemeni war. You know, there's been a truce within Yemen operating in 2022, which although it expired, basically remained more or less active most of the 20, all of 2023. And indeed, only a few weeks ago, the UN Special Envoy announced that an agreement had been reached and that it would be signed and sealed in early January. And I think the urgency for both the Saudis and the Americans was really to get this signed before the Red Sea situation deteriorated and therefore made the signature difficult, if not impossible. I haven't heard anything about this in the last few days. I understand the special envoy is again doing his shuttle diplomacy from one bit to the other. But I think in a way, you know, what has happened and the killing, as you mentioned, of the 10 Houthis and the sinking of the three small boats, you know, has basically made it almost impossible to sign an agreement now. I was at a, a shipping event in the United Arab Emirates recently, and one of the points that was made to me very clearly was if this escalates out of control, there will be the diversion of shipping from the Red Sea round South Africa, costing a lot of money, creating a real problems, logistical problems, and you will have to pay for it, meaning all of us will have to pay for it in Western Europe and elsewhere. I mean, there is, in other words, a kind of enlightened self-interest point here, isn't there? Well, there's no doubt that the diversion of the ships is, you know, is expensive um, and will increase costs. I think, you know, over, one shouldn't overestimate. I think the main the main sufferer from, from that is going to be the Egyptian government and the Suez Canal, because, you know, the the Egyptians are incredibly dependent on the income from the Suez Canal, and of course, all diversions, uh, you know, reduce that income. So I think, in that respect, you know, it is it is an element. Um, but I, overall, I wouldn't say, you know, the diversion of the shipping is it's an inconvenience. It increases the cost. It delays deliveries. But I wouldn't say that's an earth-shattering transformation. I mean, if you compare it to COVID or other events in recent years, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, I don't see it as a world-shattering event. Can I ask a blunt question, which may um, be one that's in the minds of some people listening to this, which is, why should we care? What would be the problems if this is allowed to fester in the way it has? I mean, I think the, you know, the, the Gaza war and what's happening in Palestine has certainly very dramatically impacted the world view of the West and the US, with the US in the lead and Britain included, where I think if you look at the rest of the world and particularly throughout the Arab world and the people, you know, the comparison between the way Ukraine is dealt with and Palestine is dealt with is something that, you know, is so, hits people in the face so much that the reputation as you know upholders of international law and upholders of you know humanitarian values etc are things that are now considered jokes so i think in terms of of reputational balance situation the this war has cert- is certainly affecting very very deeply the views against the west if part of what the houthis are doing is trying to stop shipping going to israel and the united states 
is stopping the Houthis, then it may look around the world as if this is the United States, of course, protecting an ally, Israel, and it will change perhaps the way in which the United States is seen again around the Arab world. I mean, how do you how do you view the way in which that could develop, particularly since it could become even more serious? I think that would, you know, that would basically strengthen the elements we've talked about before, which is the unpopularity of, you know, what what the Israelis are doing in the region uh, and increased support, you know, for Palestinians and anti-Americanism. So I think that element would be, you know, would continue. Um, Again, you know, what would happen within Yemen depends very much on what they would strike and and how and you know how seriously that would further uh, diminish the capacities of Yemen to basically run an economy or you know a country in any way and particularly you know however many people would get killed. I mean, in the period when the Saudi-led coalition was bombing you know this indiscriminately, that had a very strong effect of basically creating opposition and hatred for those who were carrying out these activities. And should the Americans or the Brits do similar things, the same reaction will will take place, I think, amongst the Yemenis and amongst people throughout the region. Um, whether that would, you know, actually lead to something more dramatic in terms of formal international involvement in the fighting. I think is, in my view, doubtful. I think the 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 fact that the conflict hasn't spread effectively or in a fundamental way to most of the area is indicative of the fact that there is a widespread feeling amongst political leaders that they don't want to see this war expanding. I think if you look at the populations, I suspect that you'd get a different view. So just to pick up that final point, Iran would continue to be a friend and supplier of the Houthis, but would not necessarily necessarily see it in Iranian interests to widen the conflict and get more directly involved. Yes, I think that's that's a fair assessment. I think if you also look, you know, at what's been happening with respect to Gaza and Palestine in general and what's been happening in that area, you know, the Iranians haven't really done very much. Indeed, you know, none of the none of the states that claim to be anti-Israelis have done anything very significant. What has been done has been by, you know, what are commonly described as non-state actors. Where does this leave relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia? Because obviously the Houthis are getting the weapons from Iran. And so presumably this rapprochement remains very difficult. Well, the Houthis are definitely getting technical 
assistance from Iran in terms of not necessarily whole drones and, and missiles, but, you know, bits, bits and pieces that are sophisticated for them. Um, I think, you know, the, the Iranian-Saudi negotiations and rapprochement is really a very a more general and wide element, which intending or trying to control the Houthis is an, is an element. But I don't, I think it's more likely to be affected by the by the, the developments in Gaza and in Israel Palestine itself, in the sense that you know up to now the Saudis have managed to stay very quiet and say very little about it, and although they have prevented any pro-Palestinian demonstrations taking place in the country, in country. You know, all that has happened has been the the fact that the normalization, if it was going to happen, has been delayed. So I think it's in the interests of both the Iranians and the Saudis to continue their rapprochement, or at least to prevent the situation from deteriorating between them. And I think it's a you know it's an opportunity that the the Saudis have missed. Um, or up to now have missed, they might still take it. You know, if they revive the 2002 Saudi peace proposal, which is officially the Arab League's peace proposal currently, and which is, in my view, eminently reasonable, you know, this would be an opportunity, particularly if they manage to have something close to it happening, it would be something that would be improve their popularity throughout the Arab and Muslim world and possibly well beyond that. And I think that's an opportunity which I'm a bit surprised they're not actually taking up. And and just a, a final thought, if I may, where does this leave the state of Yemen now? Because it's the, 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 the cliche, which is based in fact, is that it is the poorest country in the region. Yes, Yemen is the poorest country in the region. There's no doubt about that. And it's also in terms of, you know, natural resources, and particularly of hydrocarbons, extremely insignificant, basically. And we're now, you know, close to completing nine years of civil war. You have on the one hand what's known as the internationally recognized, which is composed of a number of, of divergent and sort of not fighting, but disagreeing factions within it. On the other hand, you have the Houthis, a group of fundamentalist Zaydis. And Zaydis are a branch of Shiism, which is not exactly the same as the Iranian branch of Shiism. And they are running a kind of escape. They are running an extremely oppressive and centralized and very, you know, organized state. In terms of the internal peace in Yemen and the prospects for Yemen, it does sound as if that can be rather dark, frankly, that this is a, this is a war which in various ways will continue for a very long time. Yes, I think, you know, what would have happened or might still happen if this agreement that's been negotiated is signed is that it will primarily basically get the Saudis out of the war and enable the Saudis to say that, you know, they have ended their involvement and possibly claim some kind of positive element to that. So, But it will not change the fundamental problems that exist within Yemen. And I think also when you look at the divergence and increasing divergence between the Saudis and the Emiratis with respect to the factions they support in the internationally recognized government, you have also a, a, more, a bigger problem emerging in, in the long run. 
I mean, if this agreement is signed, you the neither the Saudis nor the Emiratis will stop supporting their factions. They will just do it slightly less openly or less obviously. It would also strengthen the Houthis because, you know, it means that there would be less opposition to Houthi actions or at least a weaker opposition to Houthi actions. So I think in terms of the long-term solution to Yemen, this would be a step, but not a very big step because it leaves the poverty, it leaves the collapsed economy, it leaves the fragmented society. I mean, the fragmentation of society in Yemen has been stunning over the last decade, really. And it leaves, you know, a, a broken country with no funding, no limited support, a, a generation or more than one generation have been brought up in, in hunger and poverty and without education and with inadequate health services. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's not a very nice picture. Sorry. On that note, Helen, thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. The capacity of the Middle East to surprise and shock us all seems at times unlimited. To stay on top of developments and to get beneath the headlines on the most urgent issues we face today, follow This Is Not A Drill. You can help us produce the show and get early access to episodes and other bonus content by supporting us on Patreon. Just search This Is Not A Drill Patreon for more information. I'm Gavin Esler. Thank you for listening. This is Not A Drill, was written and presented by Gavin Esler and produced by me, Robin Lieber. Our music's by Paul Hartnell, art by Jim Parrott, and social media by Jess Harpin. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, executive producer Martin Boytosh, and This Is Not A Drill is a Podmasters production.